Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 245. Today's big Bible question is all about the ultimate mystery. What is the mystery of God? Plus, is there swearing in the Bible? Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another Friday edition of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today, we are talking about a mystery. Not a Sherlock Holmes kind of mystery, although I'm a fan, but one even better than that. Some of you old-timers will recall that this podcast used to be called the Bible Mystery Podcast back in the day, which I think actually was a pretty good name, uh, much better than the generic name we have now, but at least it's fairly descriptive. You know what you're getting into based on the name. Before we get to our mystery, though, I want to briefly talk about 1 Samuel again and ask the question, are there bad or swear or cuss words in the Bible? And of course, there aren't any modern bad swear words in the Bible unless you sort of count the KJV's use of the alternate form of donkey, which I don't. But I do think you might have an instance of somebody using some pretty bad language today in First Samuel. And there's a few other instances of that in the Bible, too. Good old King Saul has let jealousy rack his heart as Saul Paul would warn about many years later, centuries later actually, that jealousy ultimately turned into a bitter root that defiled many, which caused King Saul to curse his son Jonathan and sort of his own wife too and Jonathan's mom at lunch when Saul's plan to kill David was thwarted again. Now, does Saul's epithet count as swearing? Well, I'd say so, especially if you read it in the New Living Translation or the Dewey Rames Translation. And honestly, if you read it in the King James Version, you're going to kind of come away wondering about what it's talking about. But the Christian Standard Bible sort of smooths out the Hebrew idiom at the end and makes it make what the original Hebrew intended for it to be. What? We're not talking about cussing today, as they say in the South. We're talking about a beautiful mystery. So let's read 1 Corinthians 2, and then we'll come back and discuss what mystery is Paul referring to exactly. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom, because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived— God has prepared these things for those who love him. Now God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit, since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except his Spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. 
But the person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit because it is foolishness to him. He's not able to understand it since it's evaluated spiritually. The spiritual person, however, can evaluate anything, and yet he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone for who has known the Lord's mind that he may instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. So you see there at the very beginning in verse 1, Paul says, "We I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God. And then in verse 7, he says, on the contrary, we speak God's wisdom, hidden wisdom, in a mystery. So we don't have to wait very long for the mystery to show up in this passage. Paul says that he came with that on his mind. That was his pronouncement. Now, the CSB translators make an interesting choice to use mystery in verse 1, because the word there that is in the Greek is the Greek word marturion, which sort of means bearing witness or testimony. Verse 7 in the Greek, however, uses the more familiar word for mystery, mysterion, of which our English word is obviously etymologically connected to. So Paul comes to the Corinthians and he proclaims the mystery of God, which, you know, is a pretty interesting phrase, isn't it? What is the mystery of God? Well, the good news is we don't have to put on our dear stalker hat to solve this because Paul speaks frequently elsewhere of this mystery and gives us more of an idea what he is talking about in other passages. For instance, we get a bit of a clue in 1 Timothy 3.16. Most certainly, says Paul, the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by the angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Well, first Timothy there gives us a blaring clue as to what this mystery is, and then Colossians 2 brings it right home for us. Colossians 2, 1 through 3 says, I want you to know how greatly I am struggling for you, Colossians, for those in Laodicea and all who have not seen me in person. I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Jesus is the mystery of God. But again, what in the world does that mean? How is Jesus a mystery? Well, it's a great question, and we get to go back to Paul for an answer. Because in Colossians 1, he says, I have become the church's servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, says Paul, striving with his strength that powerfully works in me. So now we're getting somewhere. Jesus is the mystery of God, and part of the reason he is the mystery of God is because this plan of God was predestined to happen before the world began, according to our First Corinthians passage today. And it was hidden to the world until the coming of Jesus. In other words, even before the fall of man happened in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, the triune God knew what was coming and knew that the coming of Jesus and his death and resurrection were the only solution to sin in the world. So for hundreds of years of biblical history, really more than a thousand, the people of God turning away from God and returning to him after discipline and then turning away and returning after discipline again, 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 
God always knew that the ultimate solution was coming. The mystery, Jesus, was coming. He would live the life we should have lived, die the death we deserve to die, and then Jesus would send his spirit into us to be the great hope of the world. Christ in us, the hope of glory. So Ephesians 3 is probably the passage in the Bible that goes deepest into this mystery of Jesus. So let's read a pretty big chunk of it. So this is Ephesians 3, 1 through 12. For this reason, says Paul, I, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard about the administration of God's grace that he gave me from you, the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written above. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Through the gospel, I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles, that's you and me, the incalculable riches of Christ, and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So Ephesians 3, probably one of the deepest chapters in the entire Bible. But here Paul basically outlines the focus and the goal of his entire ministry. The mystery of Jesus was not made known to the prophets and saints in prior generations before his advent. Moses, Abraham, etc., they longed to see the coming rescue of God, King David and others, but they didn't see it. Maybe they had some prophetic glimpses, but it was a mystery to them. But Paul is saying it's made known to us now in his present time and, of course, now in our present time. One of the beautiful facets of this mystery is that Jesus would come and die to save not just the Israelites, but also the Gentiles. That's us, the rest of the world. Paul's ministry is to proclaim the mystery of Christ to all the Gentiles, like you and me, but that mystery is also being proclaimed through the church to all of the spiritual authorities in the heavens too, angels, demons, and all spiritual beings. Our job then as the people of God is also to proclaim this mystery throughout the ages from 33 AD, 32 AD when Jesus left and gave the Great Commission until now. Our job is to proclaim the mystery of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, not only to humans but to all of creation, seen and unseen. As we walk in this eternal purpose, we are enabled to continue and overcome because we have boldness and confident access to the literal throne room of God through the door opened by Jesus himself. So, in summation, what is the mystery of God? It's Jesus, his plan from the beginning of time to save the world and make us co-heirs with Christ the King. This mystery is our message to a lost and dying world until Christ the King returns. Amen and Maranatha. We continue with 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 1. David fled from Naioth 
to in Ramah and came to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What did I do wrong? How have I sinned against your father so that he wants to take my life? And Jonathan said to him, No, you won't die. Listen, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without telling me. So why would he hide this matter from me? It can't be true. But David said, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor with you. He has said, Jonathan must not know of this or else he will be grieved. David also swore, As surely as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, there is but a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I'll do it for you. So David told him, Look, tomorrow is the new moon, and I'm supposed to sit down and eat with the king. Instead, let me go, and I'll go hide in the countryside for the next two nights. If your father misses me at all, say, David urgently requested my permission to go quickly to his hometown, Bethlehem, for an annual sacrifice there involving the whole clan. If he says good, then your servant is safe. But if he becomes angry, you will know he has evil intentions." Deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought me into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I have done anything wrong, then kill me yourself, and why would you take me to your father? No, Jonathan responded, if I ever find out my father has evil intentions against you, wouldn't I tell you about it? So David asked Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? And he answered David, come on, let's go out to the countryside. So both of them went out to the countryside. By the Lord, the God of Israel, I will send out my father by sound out my father by this time tomorrow or the next day. If I find out that he is favorable towards you, will I not send for you and tell you? If my father intends to bring evil on you, may the Lord punish Jonathan and do so severely if I do not tell you and send you away so you may leave safely. May the Lord be with you just as he was with my father. If I continue to live, show me kindness from the Lord. But if I die, don't ever withdraw your kindness from my household. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Then Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord hold David's enemies accountable. Jonathan once again swore to David in his love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon. You'll be missed, because your seat will be empty. The following day, hurry down and go to the place where you hid on the day this incident began, and stay beside the rock Ezel. I will shoot three arrows beside it as if I'm aiming at a target. Then I will send a servant and say, go and find the arrows. Now, if I expressly say to the servant, look, the arrows are on this side of you, get them. Then come, because as the Lord lives, it is safe for you and there is no problem. But if I say this to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you. Then go, for the Lord is sending you away. As for the matter you and I have spoken about, the Lord will be a witness between you and me forever. So David hid in the countryside. At the new moon, the king sat down to eat the meal. He sat at his usual place on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat facing him, and Abner took his seat beside Saul. But David's place was empty. Saul did not say anything that day because he thought something unexpected has happened. He must be ceremonially unclean. Yes, that's it. He is unclean. However, the day after the new moon, the second day, David's place was still empty, and Saul asked his son Jonathan, Why didn't Jesse's son come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, David asked for my permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, please let me go because our clan is holding a sacrifice in the town and my brother has told me to be there. So now if I have found favor with you, let me go so I can see my brothers. That's why he didn't come to the king's table. Then Saul became angry with Jonathan and shouted, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you are siding with Jesse's son to your own shame and to the disgrace of your mother? Every day Jesse's son lives on earth 
You and your kingship are not secure. Now send for him and bring him to me. He must die. Jonathan answered his father back, Why is he to be killed? What has he done? Then Saul threw his spear at Jonathan to kill him, so he knew that his father was determined to kill David. He got up from the table fiercely angry and did not eat any food that second day of the new moon, for he was grieved because of his father's shameful behavior towards David. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the countryside to the appointed meeting with David. A young servant was with him, and he said to the servant, Run and find the arrows I am shooting. As the servant ran, Jonathan shot an arrow beyond him. He came to the location of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, but Jonathan called to him and said, The arrow is beyond you, isn't it? Then Jonathan called to him, Hurry up and don't stop. Jonathan's servant picked up the arrow and returned to his master. He did not know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew the arrangement. Then Jonathan gave his equipment to the servant who was with him and said, Go on, take it back to the city. When the servant had gone, David got up from the south side of the lawn, of the stone of Ezel, fell face down to the ground, and paid homage three times. Then he and Jonathan kissed each other and wept with each other, though David wept more. Jonathan then said to David, Go in the assurance the two of us pledged in the name of the Lord when we said, The Lord will be a witness between you and me and between my offspring and your offspring forever. Then David left and Jonathan went into the city. Lamentations chapter 5 verse 1. Lord, remember what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to stranger, strangers, our house to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are widows. We must pay for the water we drink. Our wood comes at a price. We are closely pursued. We are tired and no one offers us rest. We made a treaty with Egypt and with Assyria to get enough food. Our ancestors sinned and they no longer exist. But we bear their punishment. Slaves rule over us. No one rescues us from them. We secure our food at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is as hot as an oven from the ravages of hunger. Women have been raped in Zion, virgins in the cities of Judah. Princes have been hung up by their hands. Elders are shown no respect. Young men labor at millstones. Boys stumble under loads of wood. The elders have left the city gate. The young men, their music. Joy has left our hearts. Our dancing has turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our heart is sick. Because of these, our eyes grow dim. Because of Mount Zion, which lies desolate and has jackals prowling in it. You, Lord, are enthroned forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Why do you continually forget us, abandon us for our entire lives? Lord, bring us back to yourself so we may return, renew our days as in former times, unless you have completely rejected us and are intensely angry with us. Psalm 36 verse 1, an oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked person, Dread of God has no effect on him, for with his flattering opinions of himself he does not discover and hate his iniquity. The words from his mouth are malicious and deceptive. He has stopped acting wisely and doing good. Even on his bed he makes malicious plans. He sets himself on a path that is not good, and he does not reject evil. Lord, your faithful love reaches to heaven, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains, your judgments like the deepest sea." Lord, you preserve people and animals. How priceless your faithful love is, God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They are filled from the abundance of your house. You let them drink from your refreshing stream, for the wellspring of life is with you by means of your light. We see light. 
Spread your faithful love over those who know you and your righteousness over the upright in heart. Do not let the foot of the arrogant come near me or the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers have fallen. They have been thrown down and cannot rise. Amen. And dear friends, may this blessing be yours. Spread your faithful love, O God, over all those listening to this who know you and your righteousness over the upright in heart. Amen. Godspeed.